Well, good morning, everyone, um, and it's a pleasure to be here. I have the privilege of, of speaking at a number of different churches, and I can tell you what, if you are one of those new ones, and this is one of the first churches or the first church maybe you've ever been to, you're onto a gold mine. This really is a lovely atmosphere, and, and people are enthusiastic and bubbly, and I was most warmly welcomed. So, I want to talk a little bit about the light. Could you hold that for me, for my friend? Thank you. The whole of my story, I want to weave into it the theme of light. And this morning I, I drove up from Ashbourne, um, and I don't know about you, but I'm one of those people who is slightly affected by the weather. Now, if the sun's shining, I'm happy. I'm a great person to be near. If it's dull and grey, I get a little bit grumpy. Um, and this morning was beautiful because the light was shining through. And there's one point in my journey when I was driving alongside some woods and it had been a bit grey to start with, and the light just suddenly broke through the cloud, and it shone down through the woods, and all the glorious colours of autumn came up. And this weather's been great, hasn't it? The last couple of weeks has been incredible. And I'm told that when it's sunny and dry like this in autumn, it just intensifies the colours in the trees and transforms them. So I'm looking forward not to being grumpy this autumn. Um, the first thing I want to do with you is share a couple of verses. Um, if you'd like to, uh, brilliant, if you've got your Bibles and you'd like to share, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> we didn't rehearse this by the way, <laughs> thanks mate, if you want to, to look these verses up you can, if you just want to listen, please just listen, thank you, just, um, just listen but open your minds up to, to God's word. The first verses I'm going to read through are from 1 John and chapter 1. Verses 5 to 7. This is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you. God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. So we're lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We're not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other. And the blood of his son cleanses us from all sin. And then one other verse. This one's from Ephesians. Chapter 5 and verse 8. For once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of light. My story starts when I set off. To, to make my fortune in the big bad world. And my ambition was to be in the army. Um, and I'd been accepted to um, the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst for officer training. Um, all officers go through, uh, through Sandhurst. It's called the factory. And uh, Sandhurst is a place where you never, ever question anything. You just do it. You never, ever do anything badly. But whatever you do, never do anything well. Because then you stop being a great person. You're in the limelight. See, I've got light in there as well. See, maybe I should say someone count how many times I say light, but don't, don't do that, don't do that. You're in the limelight and you really don't want to shine. You just want to hide away and get on with it. Otherwise, life gets a bit complicated. Well, I made a bit of a mistake in that case if I wanted not to be in the limelight because as I went through the gates of Sandhurst, my mother reached over from the back of the car and she said, Justin, there's something I want you to have. She'd written an inscription inside. It's a bit battered and bruised, this thing. It's been through the wars, quite, some of it quite literally. Um, she said, you may not have room for your Bible in your backpack when you're on operations or when you're on exercise, but I hope that you'll take this and I hope you'll read it every day. And I hope that you'll keep living in the light. Because I'd made a decision quite early on in my life that I wanted to, to live in the light, that I wanted to be a Christian. I wanted Christ to be in my heart and I wanted him to be number one. Uh, and everything I did, I wanted to do for him. And I took that through to my time in Sandhurst. Within the first week of Sandhurst, there was a notice on the board. Uh, and you read in the army everything on the notice board. It tells you what to do, where to be, what to dress at. It tells you everything. So we looked at the notice board, and, and within the first week, this notice appeared. And it said, Academy Rugby Trial. And it also said that anyone who plays in the Academy First 15 gets Wednesday off training. So all 114 of my, sorry, 400, 414 of my intake went off to the rugby trial. And because there were so many, 
the people that played quite well on the first day got invited to come back the second day, which was a Sunday. I did the unthinkable. I stood up in front of this big colonel on the Sunday morning before the rugby trial. He was a classic colonel, big sideburns. He even had a monocle. And I looked up at him, at attention, and I said, Sir, I cannot play rugby today because I want to go to chapel. I'm a Christian, and Sundays are important to me. I didn't bite my head off. He smiled at me. I didn't make the first 15, but I was invited to play on the, rug, on the bench. Uh, and so we went off to rugby on, on Wednesday, and we played the game. Within two minutes, the person in my position got injured. And I went straight on, uh, and I played the best game of my life. Perhaps not up to England standards, although maybe, maybe I was. <laughs> within a couple of weeks, I played the best game of my life, and within a couple of weeks, they'd asked me to be the captain of the Academy First 15. Now, that's quite an honour, because the general, the commandant, um, he uh, loved his rugby, and he used to turn up on a Wednesday, and he'd speak to me about the team and who we were going to play. And I think I was probably the only officer cadet he actually knew by name, because at the end of my time at Sandhurst, when it came for him to decide who'd graduated top of that 414 intake, he chose me to be awarded the Queen's Sword of Honour, which again is a huge honour. Um, and as you parade round uh, on the final day, uh, you're invited to lead the Queen or the Queen's representative and introduce her to, to the officers that, that are now officers are on, who are on parade. It was a big day in my life. And my career in the army was mapped out. And all the time I lived in the light, the Lord seemed to bless what I did. And I served in Bosnia, I served in, in Northern Ireland, uh, and, and for two months I was the youngest major in the British Army. But then I chose to leave the Army, uh, and I wanted to go off and, and seek my fortune in the, in the city uh, and the world of finance. Um, so I went from leading 460 people on an operational tour in Bosnia to being the lowest of the low. I mean, I wasn't even qualified to make the tea. And, and I used to just get given all the jobs that no one else wanted to do. But I didn't mind that. I persevered. Um, the Lord gave me an incredible amount of humility. Uh, and whenever those difficult clients used to phone up, usually on a Friday about five past five, when everyone else wanted to go home, they got passed to me. And I'd quite happily chat to them. And within a couple of years, once more, the Lord blessed what I did. And I was a, the youngest managing director. Of a, of a division of a financial services company, a global financial services company, and things were pretty good. I had a six-figure salary. I'd met the girl of my dreams. We had a young boy who called Matthew. I lived up in Derbyshire because uh, my wife uh, and her family from Ashbourne, they had a hotel up here, and uh, it was important that she was near the hotel so she could carry on working. So I commuted for three hours down to London on the train to my office, door-to-door, -door, and back again. I left when it was dark, um, before anyone was up, and I got home when most of them were asleep. Something happened. Leaving in the dark and getting back in the dark was quite symbolic of where my life had got to at that stage. Because I got puffed up with my own pride. I thought, you know what, I've made it. Look, here we are, six-figure salary, doing really well in the city. Oh, I'm sorry, Lord, I don't have room for you in my life. I'd stopped going to church. I'd stopped reading the Bible. I didn't even read this little thing called Living Light. It's just a devotional with some verses in the morning, some verses in the evening. I said to God, I didn't even have time for two or three minutes to talk to him. My prayer time stopped. And what happens in a relationship? When you stop listening to someone, when you stop talking to them, that relationship dries up. And you know, I, I really believe, I, I can walk a thousand steps away from my God, but I only need to turn around and take one step back to him, and he's there waiting for me. But I wasn't prepared to take even that one step back. A few things happened around that time that were quite significant. Matthew, our son, uh, we began to notice he was favoring his left side. Even when we passed something to him on his right side, he'd reach over with his left hand and grab it. And we thought this a bit odd, and, and I spoke to Emma about it. One day I can remember her saying that there are people with left hands in her, in her family, and maybe Matthew's just going to be left-handed. And then I was driving off to, to the office one morning, about five o'clock in the morning, I turned the radio on, and I heard an interview as a retired footballer, and he was talking about how his daughter had favoured one side. 
and they'd taken her to get a diagnosis, and she had this thing called right-side hemiplegia. It's a form of cerebral palsy. Um, his daughter had had a stroke at birth, and she had limited movement down her right side. And this was stuck with me all day. I couldn't stop thinking about it. So when I got home to Emma, I said, Em, we need to take Matthew to see a doctor. I I'm really concerned about him. So we went to see someone down in London, and within just a couple of minutes, Matthew had got a diagnosis for right-side hemiplegia. And I wish I could stand up here and say to you all that I got my head around it, and I did really well, and I researched it, and I understood it. My wife did. Emma was absolutely brilliant. She went online. She understood what it would mean, and all the implications for us. Well, I think as a dad, I'd harbored these thoughts that maybe Matthew would run out on the Twickenham turf. Maybe one day he might even go into the army. And I kind of went into denial about the whole thing. We'd taken Matthew to see a consultant, and um, I can remember seeing the scar on Matthew's brain. It was quite shocking, uh, the size of it. And again, they, they thought that Matthew probably had had a stroke when he was born. And as we left, she said, and there's something else that you need to know. With a scar like that, with brain damage like that, Chances are that he will go on to develop epilepsy at some stage. I didn't think, though, that two weeks later, just two weeks later, it was a hot day, really hot, and I was holding Matthew in my arms, and his right arm just started to jerk. Now, I knew straight away what had happened. I knew he was in a fit, but I didn't know what to do, and I did everything wrong. It was a febrile fit caused by a sharp peak in his temperature, uh, and I should have laid him down and loosened off his clothing, and just let the air get to him and let him come round. I, I didn't. I put my arms around him and cuddled him up and, and tried to reassure him, which perhaps wasn't the most sensible thing to do. Neither was putting him in the car and trying to take him to hospital on a day when Ashbourne was completely gridlocked. So we took him back, and, and I can remember laying him out in the, in the driveway. And Matthew by now had turned blue. His face was blue, and his lips were purple. I, and I, I was really concerned. I was concerned for his life. So I prayed for the first time in maybe months. I did one of those really quick prayers. I said, God, please, please, I don't want to lose him. That's all I prayed. And around the corner came our next door neighbor carrying two big bags of uh, orange bags of Sainsbury's shopping. And my, retired neighbor, my next door neighbor was a retired surgeon. And he came in, stepped in, loosened Matthew's clothing off. Matthew was okay. He went off to hospital for a couple of days. Uh, and he still springs those uh, fits on us now and again. He normally, he normally manages to do it on key events, like on the morning when we're just about to go off on holiday or a wedding anniversary when I've prepared everything the night before. Um, Matthew's got great timing. He's a lovely boy. Seven years old now, full of life. He also has a diagnosis for autism, which is quite a challenge. And I guess some of you might have experienced that too in some way. That really knocked me backwards, um, the day that we nearly lost Matthew. So it was only, I think, maybe about a month later. Saturday morning, I was at home. Saturday afternoon, I was at home. Matt Emma was off at work, um, and I was watching my favorite thing, which was rugby, and I saw an advert by the side of a pitch for a five pound free bet. Now, I'd never betted before. 40 years old, uh, the only thing I may have done, and I've often thought about this, you know, was, was there a pattern? I can remember my friends playing fruit machines thinking, what a waste of time, and I, I never used to get involved. The only time was at work, in the office, when we might have a sweepstake. I didn't really understand what, what you had to do, but, but if you put two pounds in uh, and they tell you that you lose, because you never ever win these things, uh, that's the only thing I ever used to do. But now here I was, it took me two minutes, went upstairs, got my laptop, downloaded it, put a five-pound bet on, so they matched me with a five-pound free bet. That free bet was the most expensive thing that's ever happened to me, because I won. And I often wonder what would have happened if I'd lost that bet. I'm certain that I would have closed down my laptop and thought, what a waste of time. But I won. Over the next few months, and by the way, I didn't tell Emma when she got back, and I think that's significant. Over the next few few months, I, I began to gamble. Small amounts. I, I'd be just watching a game of sport thinking, oh, this is a bit of fun. This is a bit more interesting. And you know now you only have to look at TV to see this deluge of adverts making it so easy for you, 
making it look as though this thing is so nice, so fun. Generally, there's a, a good-looking woman on, on someone's arm and, and there's some mates and they're all talking about, shall I cash out? The reality, as I was to discover, isn't anything like that at all. I gambled in private online because I think I was a bit guilty about this thing that had developed, beginning to develop into a habit. I didn't used to tell him what I did, and that meant that I began to lie. I never ever had anything, any secrets between myself and my wife. And now, this thing that I was doing made me want to lie and cover my tracks. So when she'd say to me, Justin, let's go out. Uh, we've been invited around to friends at the weekend. Come out with me and, and we'll, we'll have supper with them. I'd say to her, oh no, Emma, you go. I'll look after Matthew. Actually, what I was saying is, you go and I'll stay at home in bed. And you won't have to see me. So this thing began to become a secret habit. And the secret habit over time led to something that I lost control of. I began to spend more and more money. One day I, I worked out I was losing and I am incredibly competitive. I hate to lose. I'm also an optimist. And those are not good traits to have. So what I did is I did the classic thing you never do, which is chase your losses. I worked out how much I'd lost over the course of six months. Uh, it was something like 640 pounds, and there was a tennis match coming up, and I worked out how much I would need to win everything back in one go. And I said to myself, I'll win that bet, and then I'll close down my account, I can just be done with this thing, because it's beginning to distract me from my life. I didn't have the 1,000 pounds I needed, so I phoned up the bank, and they gave me an overdraft. You can get quite a lot of credit when you own your own house, you have a six-figure sum, salary, and... I put the thousand pounds down now and I lost. And then I did the same thing again straight away. When I put that thousand pounds on this time, I was shaking. Because it wasn't just a five pound bet or a 10 pound bet. It wasn't just for a bit of fun. I did that because I wanted to win my money back. And things got worse because after a while, when you put on the big sums of money, you need to continue to put on big sums of money to get the same feeling. By now, my gambling was altering my mood. I was ashamed of what I was doing. And this thing had become a lie between my wife and I. And I was actually ashamed of my life by then. I'd been passed over promotion for promotion just before this all started. Uh, and it was an escape for me. Somewhere I could get that buzz. Maybe... Maybe a buzz that I used to get in the army. Maybe a buzz I used to get in the city that I wasn't getting anymore. So it meant that I had to put more and more money on. And to cover your tracks when you're betting those sorts of sums is crazy. I was covering my tracks for my work because I was a director of this company, a shareholder. And I knew I, they re regularly checked my credit history. So I knew I had to pay everything back. And I was juggling, juggling all, all the debts. By now, we'd sold our house. We'd moved into a rental house because Emma thought that my mood swings were her fault. They thought me being up here was great when I was winning and then down there when I was losing was all down to her. Or maybe it was something that I wasn't happy with at work. So we moved out. We had this lump sum of, of equity from the sale of our house. Money that I had in my own account that wasn't just mine. It was my wife's money that I began to use slowly over time. And after a while, it was all gone. Around about that time, I can remember, Emma was, um, it was a lovely summer's day. Uh, I could see from my, the window of my, my office, which was a spare room, because uh, by now I'd phoned up work to say, I, I don't need to come in uh, to London every day and commute down and back. I'd be much more productive to you if I stayed at home. I had opportunity and I had access to money. Not good things. There was Emma. She was walking up the lane and she had a spring in her step. I could see from a distance. But when she got to the window, she called up to me and she said, Justin, I found it. I found our dream home. She really wanted to find a place where we could be happy, where my mood swings would stop. So I went with her, and at the bottom of the lane was this old wall garden, big brick wall. Uh, and in the middle, the, the, the brick wall was kind of the kitchen garden for a, a big stately home that had been knocked down between the walls. And we often wondered what was behind there. And we went through this little door, and we walked into a piece of paradise. It's a beautiful garden with views stretching out towards the Peak District. And a lovely little house in the corner. And there was an old lady there who just lost her 
her husband and, and she wanted to move in um, to be closer. She wanted to move up to Sheffield to be closer to her, her daughter. This was the perfect place for us. I could see Emma was absolutely overjoyed and the boys would have loved it. And then I remembered that I didn't have the deposit anymore. So I looked around desperately to see if I could find something. And there in the corner of the garden was a tiny little pond. It was no more than a puddle. But I pointed to it and I said, Emma, we can't live here. The boys might fall in and drown. And that smile that she had on her face, it just dropped. A beautiful smile. I didn't see that smile again for about three years, maybe four. I felt really guilty, and that guilt that I was carrying made me go back to my habit. Because when I put a bet on, suddenly I was wired up again. And I thought to myself, this is okay, I can win everything back. Put the money back in our account, we can move to a nice house, Emma doesn't need to know. My work doesn't need to know about my habit, I can win it back. Puffed up with my own pride. My own stupidity was deluding myself to say, I'm the one that's caused this, I'm the one that needs to sort it out. When actually what I should have done is got down on my knees and prayed to the one person that could really help me, my creator. And I guess you're sitting there thinking, when's he going to reach the point where he actually gets down on his knees and asks for help? I'm sorry, I've got further to go. One day Emma opened up the fridge door and there was no food. And she said, Justin, we, we've got anything to eat, we need to go shopping. I thought, oh no, I've got another week to go before I'm paid. Well, I couldn't tell Emma that. I looked in my wallet, all, my, all I had was my corporate card that I had to use for work, for work expenses. We went to get the groceries and I paid for the groceries on my corporate card and I said to myself, that's okay, I can just put that down as a personal expense and I'll say I've made a mistake and pay it back. But you know, it was only a couple of days more before I realized that my corporate card worked on my gambling account. Now when I pressed that button, to transfer money that my company owned into my gambling account. I knew my reputation was over. I knew my job was finished. I knew there was no way I'd be able to work in the city again. And yet, I still did it. As a father, I was withdrawing. You know, I, I loved my boys. And I, the time that they used to have at their bath time, about six o'clock, they would be... Uh, splashing around and, and I should have been there and every other father should have been there. The privilege I had at being able to work from home meant that I could choose those key family moments so I would feature in my boy's life. But at six o'clock, that was also quite a busy time during the week, especially over the summer when there's a cricket match or a tennis match on. So I'd say to Emma, I can't help out with bed tonight. I've, I've got to take a really important conference call here. I closed the door and I said I didn't want to be disturbed. More lies. And then one time, it was raining outside, and Matthew said, Daddy, I just want to go to the swings with you, please. Can you take me? And as an autistic child, some of you will know, once he's fixed his mind on something, that's all he wants to do. He wanted to go to the swings with his dad. He wasn't seeing much of me, so why not? We were down at my in-law's house, um, Sunday lunch. Uh, we had lunch, it was raining outside, and Matthew kept saying, Daddy, take me now, please, I want to go to the swings. And Emma said, take him. So we got in the car, we drove back home, uh, I went to get his coat from the house. I parked the car, left Matthew strapped in in the front with the engine running. I walked in, put my hand on his coat, and then I remembered. I placed a bet that morning. I thought, I'll just go upstairs and check that the money's been deposited to my account, and then I know I can enjoy my time with Matthew. But I'd lost that bet. Two and a half hours later, I went back downstairs. I'd emptied my bank account again. My poor son, he'd cried himself to sleep in the car. The tears that he'd cried were dried on his cheeks. What kind of a dad does that? Only one that by now was not well, not well at all. It took my work two months before they found out. And the call came, it went something like this. Hey Justin, something terrible's happened. Your corporate card's been cloned. There's gambling transactions all over it, fraudulent activity. I said, boss, it's not fraudulent activity, they're my transactions. So I went in, uh, we sat down, the uh, head of HR was there, my boss was there, and he'd laid out my corporate card statements, page after page of them. They asked me to underline my own transactions. 
We worked it out. In two months, £27,000 of my company's money. Now is the bit you say to me when I get down on my knees. But I've still got further to go. As I drove home, it was Wimbledon, and I can remember placing bets going home. And I said to Emma, Emma, I've left my job. I've got a better one to go to. And then the day came, finally. And maybe I didn't want to be hiding this secret anymore. It, it, juggling everything, hiding everything. I never used to sleep. I'd be wide awake. And the only place I could ever go um, where I could find relief was when I'm sitting in front of my computer. So when Oscar woke up, by now our second son, who was teething, I, I said, Emily, you go back to sleep. I'll go and look after him. She must have thought, wow, what a great dad. But what I used to do is get, Matthew, get Oscar out of his cot, put him on my lap in the office, turn the computer on, and spin the roulette wheel. Well, he fell asleep on my leg. Nearly backfired on me one day, because... We were downstairs watching television, the in-laws were around, Emma was there, and we got one of these millions of adverts that you get, a roulette wheel going round and round, and Oscar said, look, mummy, there's daddy's work. But now she found out because I'd left the bank statement on the desk, and our friends came to stay and confronted her with it and said, do you know about this? And I'll never forget, she was curled up on the sofa. She had all the statements in front of her and she said Justin tell me this isn't true tell me you haven't done this to us and I told her and that truth crushed her if only I could have and when people say to me hey Justin you know what I, I, I've got a real problem with gambling uh, but I can't tell my wife she'll leave me I look them in the eyes and I say please tell your wife if she loves you she'll stand by you and I'm convinced mine would have done too but if you don't tell her and she finds out, you lose all trust, and trust is so precious. I tried to, to stop, um, and I did for a while. I went upstairs and I self-excluded. You can go online now, and there's 2,500 online betting sites that you could go to if you wanted to. 2,500 sites where you could place a bet. I self-excluded myself from that one site, but unfortunately, I got an email two months later from a different gambling company to say, oh, Justin, here's a £50 free bet. And I said to myself, oh, for free bet, you know, that's not gambling really, is it? And I was straight back into it again. This time Emma saw, she knew. She saw the signs and she understood what it was. And then one morning I woke up and the house was quiet. There was no sound of children's TV. There's no sound of the boys laughing as they threw scrambled egg at each other or smell of coffee. The, the place was quiet. Emma had left. And she'd taken the boys with her. And do you know what? She was right to go. Because by now I was self-destructing. With no income to feed my habit, I was selling things. At first I, I, I hid the truth from Emma. We had some really lovely things. We, we'd been quite privileged and we had lovely wedding presents. We had bits of silver and some pictures and, and some antiques. I, I'd take them in and sell them at this place I got to know. Uh, this guy must have thought all his Christmases had come through when he saw me walking through the doors. But I'd say to Emma, oh, I've just taken it in to be fixed. Uh, it'll be back later. Another lie. Everything was a lie. And then one day, my sword of honour, I thought, you know what? I could get some money for that. The most precious thing that I possessed, not necessarily the most valuable, but the most precious thing, for me priceless, something I would hand down to my children, engraved with my name. I took it to the shop, I put my hand on the door, and then I, could, I couldn't go through with it. So I walked away. A couple of days later, I went back again. This time I made it into the shop, but again, I couldn't go through with it, and finally, I went into the shop and I sold it for 200 pounds. And when I sold it, I walked out of that shop and the tears were literally streaming out of my eyes. One of those involuntary moments. I didn't even know I was beginning to cry. I just realized I was crying in the middle of Ashbourne High Street. Because what I'd just done is, I, is sold the most precious thing, the thing that represented everything good that had ever come before. Something that I feel quite strongly the Lord had given to me. He who honours me, I will also honour. And he did that that day I graduated. And yet, to feed a habit 
that was, must have been so painful for my God to sit and watch me do. I woke up the next morning at moment of clarity and, and I phoned the shop up and I said, I've made a terrible mistake. I gave you something to sell yesterday. I, I, I don't want to sell it. And the guy said, I'm sorry. We've just sold it to someone. We've got no record of where it's gone. By now, my life was pretty dark. There was no light in my life whatsoever. I was living off a sack of mouldy potatoes. I had five months rent owing. I couldn't afford to heat the house. And all the money I had went to feed my habits. So I'd take a bag of my clothes to a sweaty shop in Utoxeter. Uh, and I'd get them weighed. And I'd get a couple of pounds. And as I went back, I was happy because I thought, you know what? I can put a 16-leg multiplier on here. And I can win everything back in one go. Um, it was that time that I felt maybe my sons would be better off without me in this world. And then there was a ringing doorbell. Uh, and I looked outside. It was my mum's car. I thought, oh, no, I'm going to hide. But I didn't. I opened the door. My brother came in. My dad, too. And they said, Justin, we've just heard you're going to be evicted tomorrow. You can go and live on the streets or you can come back down to Kent. You can come back to the spare room that you, you used to live in. Age 18, with all the ambition and all the hopes and dreams that that entails. It wasn't a difficult decision, but I walked around the house. I got a, got a black bin liner of stuff, and that's really all I had. Some clothes, some pictures. I went into the boys' rooms where they'd left. Their bed's still unmade from the day they'd left a few weeks before. And I said goodbye to them. But you know what? That's what I needed. I was humbled that day, walking around the house, collecting stuff for my bin liner. Because my mum, lady who'd been there the day that I'd got the Queen's Sword of Honour, was there to see me be humbled. And I was humbled, and I needed that. God had to break me. Sometimes he needs to break us before he can build us up. Um, does anyone like gardening? Not necessarily good at it, just like it. Okay, brill. Yep. I, I love gardening. Um, I've got two kinds of clematis in my garden. There's the early flowering clematis and the late flowering clematis. This does have a point, by the way. And uh, for one kind of clematis, you've got to hard prune it. Cut it right back hard so that it will grow. All the flowers come up on the new growth. So that will climb up and, and it will produce flowers. If you don't cut it back hard, it won't flower. The other is um, a late flowering variety. And the late flowering variety, you just need to tweak and it will keep flowering. For me... I had to be hard pruned. For some of you, you might just need tweaks now and again. But for me, I had to be cut right back to my roots. And that's what happened that night. Because that night when I went home, I got down on my knees. Finally, I did it. And I said, just a really simple prayer. Do you know it was the same prayer I prayed when I became a Christian? A prayer that is so simple but will transform your life forever. Will change you beyond recognition. I prayed, Lord Jesus, I am sorry. Forgive me and come and live in my life again. That was it. Well, I didn't hear angels flying and trumpets blowing and stuff like that. It was just I felt different. And that night I went to bed happy. That's the last time I've ever placed a bet that day. And it was November 2012. And every single day since then, with God back in my life, living in the light, things have been better. Little things at first, not dramatic. First thing I had to do is sort my debt out. So I went to see a charity in my church, um, uh, Christians Against Poverty, CAP, brilliant. Um, my church has got a charity which is very much like that, where people voluntarily talk to people who've got issues around money. Show me an addict who hasn't got any issues around money. We, we, we sat down, we talked about everything that I owed, we worked out my income, which wasn't very much. I was marking a few exam papers. Um, but they all wrote to the creditors for me and they stopped ringing me. I stopped getting those horrible letters. Often it's debt that causes relationships to break up. Often it's debt that causes people to take their own lives. But the underlying issue very often is an addiction. And one thing that addiction does is it robs you of your self-esteem. I had no self-esteem. I knew, I, I knew, I, I certainly knew it, just like... I know you're, stand, you're sitting out there in front of me now. I knew that God had forgiven me. But I found it quite difficult to forgive myself. 
I wanted to get some self-esteem back, so I wanted to go out and exercise. Um, and I used to love swimming, so I went swimming again, and living in Kent, I wasn't too far from the channel. I'd always had an ambition that I'd swim to France. So I booked a date for a channel crossing. And in September last year, I attempted the, to swim to France um, solo. And let me tell you a little bit about that journey, because that journey um, was quite interesting. I got to France in 10 hours. Not quite touching France, but I could see it. I could smell it. And 10 hours is quite a good time. It was a lovely flat day. There were very few waves. Um, and the issue with the Channel Swim is two things, the weather and also the currents around the French coast. And I did the classic thing. And actually, the year before and the year before that, someone had died around about the same distance, half a mile out from the French coast, where they'd pushed themselves beyond what they could do. Uh, and I realized um, 10 hours out that I now needed I didn't need my boat anymore. I've been following my pilot the whole time. My pilot had 27 years of getting people across to France. He'd navigated his way through the two busiest shipping lanes. He knew the tides. He knew the currents. He knew the direction to go in. And it got dark after 10 hours, and the waves began to build because the wind had got up and was going in one direction, and this brit tide was going in the other, taking me up towards Belgium. And I was being thrown about in this thing they call the washing machine. And believe me, it felt like it. And every time I turned my head, if there was a wave, I'd get a mouthful of water because I couldn't see the waves. I was totally in the dark. I couldn't even see the shape of the boat. But what I could see was a little pinprick of light in, in, on the French coast. So I said to myself, hey, that's okay. I'll just swim for that light. I don't need the boat anymore. I'll just swim directly towards the French coast. But in doing so, I wasn't taking into account the tide. And my pilot and the boat were going further and further away. They kept calling to me, desperate for me just to follow them. But I said, no, nah, no, nah, I know where I'm going. I can see the light. I'm all right. I'll just keep swimming. Stubborn me once more. So what they did is they got a spotlight on the back of the boat and they shined it down on the water. I thought, what are they doing? They're going fishing. It's a silly time to go fishing. Um, maybe by now I'm, I wasn't really thinking straight because my throat had closed up with all the salt and my tongue was swelling. I was finding it difficult to breathe. I was cold. I had a, no idea why the coast wasn't getting any closer. And I was being thrown around all over the place. I was seriously thinking about jacking it in. And when this light came, suddenly it twigged. They want me to swim in this bit of light. So eventually, eventually, I made my way back over to this little pool of light. And when I got there, it all made sense. Every time I turned my head, if there was a wave coming, I could see. So I just ducked my head, and I didn't take on so much salt water. They were close enough to talk to me, to encourage me, to feed me. With this, they gave me a triple-strength carb drink about that time. I've got the notes from the, the pilot wrote about my swim. It's quite interesting. I'm not allowed to touch the boat when you're swimming across. They throw down a, a bottle to you on a string, and, uh, and you get this warm drink, and you drink it, and off you go again. But suddenly, when I was in this pool of light... I realized I was in the right place. I was sheltered from the wind too. The wind that was going in uh, the other direction, the boat placed himself so that he sheltered me from the wind. Now when I live my life in the darkness, doing my own thing, swimming off to France on my own, my life is messed up. But when I'm living in the light, when I swim in that little pool of light, the Lord blesses what I do. I made it to France in 12 hours and 40 minutes. And when my foot touched the sand, it was such a good feeling. The Lord still had quite a lot of work to do in my life. My life was pretty barren, but he was. Because every morning I was waking up, and that person who I'd had an intimate relationship with, and who I'd just completely walked away from, was there. I talk about a thousand steps away, I took one step back. And all I did is I immersed myself in this wonderful treasure. Ladies and gentlemen, if you've let your quiet time slip, if you don't yet read the Bible, if you don't even have a Bible, this is the most precious thing you could ever have. Get intimate with it again. Commit every morning. Set your alarm a little bit earlier. Read the Bible every day. Listen. In that relationship of intimacy, you've got to listen. But you've also got to talk. And I started to share stuff with God. The debts were paid back in January last year by wonderful provision. 
and I volunteered to be an advisor on that set, same charity that give death advice. And I now have the privilege of being able to share people who are really needy now, advice with them, helping to get their debt sorted. I went to the House of Lords in March and uh, I, I spoke um, with another um, recovering gambler um, about the dangers of gambling. Um, they were debating an amendment to the, uh, the gambling bill that would have allowed a one-stop exclusion. So you could go online and instead of excluding yourself two and a half thousand times, just exclude once. That would have saved my marriage without a doubt. They listened to our testimony and they debated the amendment and they didn't even bother voting. They said it's a no-brainer. Within about a month from now, the Gambling Commission are going to establish one-stop exclusion, which is wonderful. And the Lord has used my story in lots of ways. I really want people to know, when you see this barrage of adverts, that there's a downside. And the reality is very different to the reality that's portrayed. Three quarters of all adults gambled at some point over the last year. Of that, 98% will gamble without too much problem. 2% will become compulsive gamblers. Their lives will be destroyed if left unchecked. The industry says a tiny percentage. Well, it may be, but that's 450,000 people. And for every one problem gambler, there are 15 people around them who are having their lives destroyed by this addiction. There's also about 3.5 million that are at risk. Many of them are our young people. It's our young people that are most at risk because they're the best at smartphone technology. And that's where it's all done now. They're also the ones that are most susceptible to this advertising. We need to get rid of, we need a watershed for that advertising. It isn't right. We also need compulsory education, I believe, in schools. I went downstairs the other day, and Matthew, my seven-year-old, he loves his iPad. He loves playing this thing called Roller Coaster Tycoon. And what you have to do is you have to um, build, a, um, build your fun fair up and get people to come and visit and you get more credits and the more credits you get the bigger the roller coaster that you can build and one of the things you can build is a casino and I came downstairs and I saw my seven year old rolling a fruit machine oh, well, that really worried me because there's a lot of talk and a lot of studies about genetics and how, how a propensity to be an addict can be passed from one generation to another I was really worried for him so I did some research, and it turns out that the people that own that software are a gambling company in Las Vegas. Our children are becoming normalized to a behavior which is not right. I started going to GA um, when I went back home. Gamblers Anonymous. It was great. I went there, and I suddenly realized I wasn't the only idiot in the whole world. That Actually, there were other people, too. But I was worried, because they kept talking about a god of their own understanding. A higher power. I wanted to be honest and say, do you mean God? So I was looking for some form of recovery that I could get involved with. Uh, and after two years of being clean, um, I found uh, a course um, run by Holy Trinity Brompton, which is available for other churches if they wanted it. Just like Alpha, a meal, a talk, some group work. Uh, I've, run th I've run three of these now, and we're in our fourth, second week in. On a Wednesday night now in Tunbridge and Tunbridge Wells, you'll find 70 people sitting around in groups with all kinds of addictions, eating issues, issues around money, habits that are damaging them, drugs, alcohol, gambling, pornography, issues that are difficult to talk about in churches. But we just invite them to come along, and it's amazing how many people find that they've got these habits. And Christ wants us to be free. He doesn't, want to be, he doesn't want us to be slaves to these things. You know, I can remember uh, as a teenager having a conversation with someone, and he looked me in the eyes and he said, I don't want to be a Christian. Christi being a Christian is boring. I can't do this and I can't do that and I can't go to parties. Being a Christian is true freedom. And I've experienced that freedom because every time I look at a computer, I have the choice now, thanks to God's grace and only God's grace, the choice not to get myself wired up into a stupid habit. And we all have that freedom. We all have that power. Because I firmly believe with addiction, and I've seen it with this course, and we've seen 150 people through now. People becoming Christians for the first time, walking into churches that have never been through. People who have been set free. I've got people now who came on my first course who are running one of my small groups for me, who have had their lives transformed by the grace of God. 
I truly believe we, we carry hurts, don't we? We can't reach adulthood now without some form of pain and hurt. And as humans, what do we do when we feel hurt? We reach for a medication. That might be eating, it might be drinking, it might be gambling, it might be any excuse. I can't believe I'm going to quote Russell Brand in your church, but I'm going to tell you, Russell Brand said something quite meaningful. He said, drugs and alcohol are not my problem. Life is my problem. Drugs and alcohol are my solution. And for many, the solution to the pain that they've got is to reach for an addiction, reach for a habit. But that means that the pain doesn't go away. When you wake up the next morning, it's worse. There is only one true way to be completely free of these habits. Habits that act like that big cloud that block our relationship with God. And that is to have Christ living in your heart every morning talking to him and listening to his word. Having him guide you like a whopping great lighthouse on the coast of France, guiding me in. People often ask me, Justin, I'm going to finish in a minute. People often ask me, Justin, what is it? How did you find your recovery? What's the secret? And I've stood up in the O2 arena and I've spoken to, to groups of mental health nurses and I, I've spoken on Radio 5 Live. I've done some TV stuff uh, and they all ask me, what is it? And I tell you now, I don't care whether I'm on BBC Radio 4 or the Lorraine program, I'll turn around and say, it is my belief and faith in Christ that set me free. And I would love it for everyone to have that feeling too. Because we don't need to be slaves to anything. On the morning of the 17th of August 2013, five and a half million people woke up and read a double page spread in the Daily Mail of how an ex-army officer squandered three quarters of a million pounds over three years. And when I read that, I thought, oh no, what have I done? What have I done? Now everyone's going to know how stupid I am. But you see, my problem, maybe the whole reason why I got into this, maybe the reason, reason why I stopped living my life for Christ in the light was because I tried so hard to be all things to all people. I wanted to be the perfect employee, the perfect dad, the perfect husband, the perfect son, the perfect Christian. But except in God, there is no such thing as the perfect person. And the reality is that I, didn't, I wasn't the perfect person at all. I was a flawed character, but a character loved by God, created by God. So when God looks down on me, he doesn't see an imperfect person. He sees his creation. And who are we to question that? Because we're all God's creations. But the freedom I had, not having to pretend to be someone I wasn't to the world outside now, set me free. And when people started emailing me or, or sending me notes to say, thank you, we saw that advert, it saved our marriage, or it's convicted me of my problem, uh, and now I'm getting help, I realized God was going to use this story. And that's why I wrote my book. Uh, and Tales I Lose uh, is not a story of, it's not a recovery manual. It's just my story. It's a story of how someone up here who thinks he's got it all, but isn't it living in the light, can fall right down there. And this is the most important thing. If you take nothing else away, Christ wants us to be free. And we're free when we have an intimate, loving, ongoing, two-way relationship with the creator of this entire universe. And that's my story. Will you share now with me? Will we, can we pray? And close eyes and um, just focus for one minute on, on the Lord. Maybe, maybe there's something that I've said which touches a particular part of your life. Maybe you know someone who uh, has an issue around addiction. Maybe you've got a secret habit and you haven't realized there's no such thing as a secret before Christ. That he knows our hearts. Maybe you need to talk to someone about it. Perhaps at home, perhaps even here before you leave today. I'm going to stay around. I'm not going to leave. I'm going to have a chance for you to talk. And I know that the others in the leadership too will be down at the front, around the side. 
Come and talk to us. Come and have some prayer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are a God of grace. You are a forgiving and loving God. And it doesn't matter how far we can run away from you. that You are there right beside us, ready to step up and lift us up out of the dark places that we get ourselves into. Lord Jesus, we give you the authority today to shine your torch into our hearts. Shine your light into those places that we have hidden or think we've hidden from you. Help us to see those things that are wrong. We pray this week as we go into our our regular lives, Lord Jesus, that you would just open up our hearts and allow the light of your perfect, perfect love to shine on us. Forgive us for the things that we do that are destructive, destructive to you, to ourselves, and to our relationships with other people. We give you authority to restore our lives once more. In your name. Amen. Now, there's one quick thing I want to do, and it's quite funny because I forgot to mention it when I was, uh, when I was down at the gathering in this big tent. My story is a story of hope and reconciliation, of things that God does in our lives to, to give us stuff back. Not only did my wife and children come back to me last year, uh, and that's a work in progress, by the way. I haven't got the perfect marriage. I'm doing the washing up every night. But I know I still have to work at that, and I haven't given up hope of that being restored fully. But he did something really special for me, and his timing is amazing. And I normally start crying when I tell you this part of my story. On Christmas Eve, just gone, I had a package through the door. It was FedEx. It was quite tall, like this, quite slim. I knew what it was straight away. I ripped open the cardboard like I was a four-year-old again on Christmas morning. And inside was my sword of honor with my name on it. And uh, he did that. He didn't have to do it on Christmas Eve. It was amazing. Someone had found it online and they saw a sword of honor. No one sells that. It must be stolen. They Googled my name and they saw all this stuff that came up. They got in touch with one of the newspapers that had run my story. And they got in touch with me. And the sword came home. God is a God of grace, isn't he? Should we give him a round of applause?